Hello, everybody. This is Joshua Hatton with One Nation Under Whiskey Podcast. I am joined today, and as always, by my friend and business partner, Mr. Jason Johnston Yellen. Welcome to the show, Jason. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like a guest today. I know. Yeah. So uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. I run an independent bottling company called Single Cast Nation. Okay. That is both online and in retail stores in the United States. That's fantastic. I run three whiskey festivals in the United States called Whiskey Jubilee. I take offense to that. They're in New York, Chicago, and Seattle. Good. And I run Whiskey Geek Tours of Scotland Mm -hmm. and a podcast. And I do it all with my friend a business partner, Mr. <laughs> Joshua Hatton. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's it's a pleasure to do it with you, as they say in some businesses. As we are uh, recording first episode that you and I are recording in 2018, not the first one published in 2018, but the no. first one yeah. recorded in this year. And I selected a very special whiskey to go along with this recording, and I, I seem to have convinced you into drinking the same whiskey along with me. It was significant arm twisting. <laughs> significant. <laughs> Took a lot of convincing, but here we are. Yeah. So we've got our Single Cast Nation Ardmore 8-year-old, which there may be some still on store shelves, but this is the one where the whiskey was distilled at Ardmore, but spent all eight years of its life in a cask that previously held Laphroaig whiskey so it's quite unique yep juicy oily meaty lovely yeah you know what's been happening that that makes me think of the desert planet dune arrakis i have literally no idea we've been telling people to email us tweet at us instagram message us facebook message us their questions for our mailbag episode on February 14th, so it'll go live on February 14th, and we're collecting questions until the end of this month, so we will, January 31st is the last day in which to send in a question for our special bail bag episode, but I've got to tell you, the questions are flowing like the spice I'm... on the desert planet of Dune, Arrakis. Ah, uh, wow, yes. that was a long way, but I thought... Quite an enjoyable payoff. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea that's where that was going. Wow. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh, you're starting 2018 strong, my friend. You know it. <laughs> you know it. The, weak, <laughs> the weakest response possible. <laughs> you know it. All I was missing was a thumbs up and an eye wink. <laughs> Two you thumbs way up. <laughs> Pink. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's actually, I, I don't use the term frustrating, but it, it is looking at all these great questions coming in and we haven't had a chance to answer them or discuss them just yet. It's yeah, it's hard just leaving them sitting there. But um, I, I think the, the February 14 episode is going to be terrific. I'm really excited to get through these questions. Yeah, some of them are actually or should actually force us to do a little research they're very good some yeah you don't want to do it (laughs) (laughs) 
I don't know. Where's the fun in that? I, I did like that. We do have one question that came in. I won't give anything away, but but the the author of the question did say, and if you don't know the answer, I would love to hear your wild speculation. <laughs> and I thought that is who fits our audience beautifully. Yeah, yeah. That person so, knows us very well. <laughs> so in today's episode, Joshua Hatton, uh-huh. friend and business partner. All right. <laughs> we are returning to an event uh, that you were at back during Whiskey Jubilee Chicago week. Yes. Where I was off at my own exclusive malts tasting that I was running, but you were at a single malt event at Warehouse Liquors. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so we laid down some of the footage, the Chris Reisbeck. It's not footage. Westland. It's just audio. Oh, do you know what? Do you know what's? We'll get back to the intro in just a second. Do you know what's funny about that? When we had the midnight come between twenty seven and twenty eighteen, the dawn of the new year. Yes. I just had this revelation came over me, and I thought, in twenty eighteen, I'm gonna get the podcast words right. I just <laughs> just came over me and I just I felt very confident in that moment and I thought to myself I'm not even going to say footage because I know that upsets Joshua when I do I'm going to say audio and I'm going to make him happy and I'm going to make him proud <laughs> and the very first yeah. usage in 2018 yeah. I screwed it up Yep, seven and a half days later and here we are. Was that a movie with King Basinger? Basinger? Seven no, and a half seven, days later? No, that was Seven Days in, in Tibet with uh, Brad Pitt and the other guy. Really? You're now going to pick up the six and a half weeks that I'm putting down? Oh, I forgot about that. I've You have disappointed me in your own way, Joshua. You know, I never saw that movie. I tell you, as a as It an was nine and a half weeks, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> you only caught the first two thirds of it. That's all you needed. <laughs> I'll be honest, I only caught the first day. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Anyway, anyway, so by way of a mea culpa, yes, we have used the footage previously. Some of the footage. No, Not what we're listening to today. So to be clear, footage is the word I shouldn't be using. Yes, that's correct. It's audio. Footage footage implies that we also recorded video. Okay, you just because you look like you're having a stroke there. So, okay. So, we used audio from that event previously. Mm-hmm. It's in the Whiskey Jubilee Chicago episode, episode 21, I believe. Yep. Yep. When we spoke with Chris Respeck of Westland. Exactly. From yep. Westland. And that's, that's wonderful, wonderful audio. I highly recommend that to any listener who hasn't heard it previously. So, the reason I'm, I'm kind of taking a little step backwards here, Ooh, backing, backing it up, up yeah. as I learned in 2017. <laughs> the reason I'm backing it up is as our listeners are listening to the audio that we're putting in here, mm-hmm. there's a fair bit of background noise. And so I wanted them to know what was happening around uh, you okay. yep. uh, as you were speaking to Zach Pilgrim, who is uh, one of the distillers at Balcones Distillery. There you go. And so, so do you want to just quickly reframe the event that was organized by um, 
people yeah. who weren't us? Yeah, uh, sure. So this was the night before Whiskey Jubilee. So like you had said so eloquently at the beginning of the podcast, mm-hmm. we do Whiskey mm-hmm. Jubilee Festival in New York, Chicago, and Seattle. And something that we like to put together is Whiskey Jubilee Week, which is basically the Monday through Wednesday, and then it's capped off with Thursday being the Jubilee, and then Friday is, we just, we, we don't really plan anything on the Friday, but it just... We tend so, to go home to our families on a Friday. We typically tend to go home to our families on Friday, which is quite nice. Uh, and but, tell them that we haven't been drinking all week. But it just, but it just so happens that, that this past Chicago Jubilee, the majority of the events that were set up were actually not set up by us. They were sort of sponsored by us and set up by other parties. And this one in particular was an American single malt um, council. I think it's the council conglomerate. No. I do know for a fact it's not conglomerate. Consensus. So you're telling me it begins with C. Begins with C. Okay. Okay. And uh, it's basically a a group of 80 different smaller distilleries in the U.S. working together to create a new definition of what single malt is to be known as moving forward. We're We're currently American single malt, like bourbon could be only 51% malted barley in the mash bill. And then you can put corn in there, you can put rye in there, you could put wheat in there. And it also has the stipulation of being matured in new charred oak. So it's not what people generally think of as single malt when it's being produced in Scotland, Japan, you know, basically the rest of the world. And so part of what they want to do is say, no, 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 single malt's got to be all barley, all malted barley in the mash bill, and we want to be able to use new charred oak and used oak from many different sources, whether it's ex-bourbon or ex-sherry or, or what have you, and really simple terms that kind of more align what single malt production in the U.S. would be like when compared to the rest of the world, you know, really really tie themselves to to a global standard more than what we have now. And I interrupted you before. What were you going to say? It makes sense to frame this because in listening to the interview with Zach, it is a single malt conversation. It and is. So it's good to know the event that you're standing at, the reason why you were discussing single malt, the reason why that was the focus for it. Commission. Uh, American Single Malt Commission. <laughs> First, time. <laughs> First time. First time. First time. Yep. Uh, <laughs> Maga. <laughs> and so so for balcones. <laughs> <laughs> Try that again. <laughs> Well, just it's funny because we've had Winston Churchill Edwards, the, the the national brand ambassador, and beyond. He's he's flown over to London and done work in, in London. Oh yeah, sure. For for balconies as well. We've had him on previously, where he has said it is balconies like cojones. Oh, and, that's and right. There, and there is a part of me that each time 
I go to form balcones. I feel like that's not right. And so I'm often trying to correct myself mid-sentence with a balcones, which we know is incorrect. Yeah, you're you're like the entire world trying to pronounce Bunahaben, Glengarry, you know, you name it. All right. Uh, You really went straight to my Scottish mispronunciations, did you? I see. I see, Joshua. I'll store that away. That will not be forgotten. Okay. Okay. As if I have ever said Bunahaven incorrectly. Or Glegiri. I'm just saying. Baumor. Lagavul. Baumor. Baumor. Lagavulin. And you gotta carry that lagavulin. It is distilled in the deepest depths of Mordor. <laughs> and then uh, Gollum anyway. and the evil one crept up and slipped away with her. <laughs> so, Balcones. Uh huh. Zach Pilgrim. Scott, not Scott Pilgrim. Zach Pilgrim. I said Zach Pilgrim. Did you? No idea. It sounded like you said Scott Pilgrim versus the world. So, so you you set the stage a little bit. Yes, I did. Okay, where I did. I did. we? You know me, so thank you. Yep. So, uh, where the event was, who set up the event, uh, which was yep. the American Single Malt Commission, and and yeah, it was a it was a busy night. You know, we capped it to about. 20, 25 people, somewhere around that, and somewhere around there. And so when you're listening back, you're going to hear the crowd of people in the background. Yeah, it's pretty pronounced. Yeah, but I was really interested in, in just getting to know them a little bit more. Because, you know, while I, while I know their whiskeys, I wanted them to explain a little bit how they're getting their flavors and where they're getting the color of their whiskey from, uh, because if you look at any Balcones bottling, the liquid, the juice is as dark as could be. And the flavors are incredibly bold. You know, it's, it's, their whiskeys seem to emulate what the image that Texas puts out, which is big, everything big. This is us, right? And so we started off the conversation with me asking Zach, you know, where their flavors are coming from and, and how are they getting that. So I want to move the tape over to him, and Zach will talk about that a little bit. <laughs> yeah, so uh, talking about the climate, which, um, you know, that's the, that's the nice, you know, flowery story that we want to tell and, you know, people want to hear. Um, and it does do a lot, as I, as I explained how, you know, if you just have hot, it doesn't uh, cycle and give you the, all that color. Um, but really, the, uh, the toast, the profiles that we use for the barrels that we get from ISC, um, they're not just straight-up bourbon barrels that have a one, two, or three, four char. Um, these, are, these are barrels that actually have a lot of time uh, with heat and get penetrated all the way to the stave. Yeah. So the whiskey can get further into the stave to pull out all of that good stuff. Yeah. So it's a combination of the climate. Um, the cycling between extreme hot and a little bit of cold and uh, the quality wood that we use. Are you 
What what ABV are you putting the the spirit in? Is it a higher ABV? Uh, well, it's the highest you know whiskey can be. Sixty two five is the vast majority of our entry proofs um, are right about sixty two five. So I, I knew that that was a law to bourbon. I didn't know it was a law to single malt um, as well. I think it's a uh, Scotch has a, a maximum entry proof as well. Yeah. Uh, I thought it's closer to eighty. Uh, they can enter higher because their proof goes down. Yeah, they might be able to so get So with, with Scotch whiskey, this, the industry standard is 63.5. We have distilleries like Tam Dew, Glenn Farkless, a few others that will fill at 70, 71% alcohol. There's, there's no, there's nothing that says it has to go in at this. There is an industry standard, however. Right. Yeah, I guess it's um, for whatever American whiskeys that are defined as 6205. Okay. Okay. So it's kind of, um, I mean, categories. I think one of the reasons we were going to be here today is to talk about the American uh, Single Malt Society yeah, yeah, yeah. and kind of how we're uh, starting to change, uh, trying to change some of these laws and regulations. I think right now, as it's as it's written, um, the the reg for malt whiskey, it's it actually defines. If you read it, it's a really a specific style of, of whiskey, but it's placed in there in a way that is really a catch-all, you know, malt whiskey. If you make malt whiskey, it's got to fit that. But it's so, you know, it has to be aged in new wood, and it's a very specific style. So I think a lot of us here are already doing things that are very traditional, um, have a place in uh, industry-accepted practices and whatnot, been done for hundreds of years, um, that we technically can't really do for malt whiskey, you know, in America. So I think that's one of the things that we're trying to do is just be able to apply traditional techniques um, and make America and whiskey, you know, we're not trying to rip off, rip off scotch, but we do, uh, you know, want to pay homage to the tradition, and obviously those techniques are useful to make great whiskey. So, so what are some of those? Uh, I'm sorry, am I totally taking airtime? Yeah. Okay. Cool. Cool. Um, so, so what are because because you're right, you know, the the laws as they're applied today are. It's it's weird. It's a it's it's not it it is weird. So what are you looking? What are the things that you're looking to put into place, right? Yeah, I mean, I would just like. Um, I mean, if we could make it simple, which we probably can't. So we, I mean, we kind of have to agree upon a way to get some change going. But really, um, to have a to have a malt category that isn't so restrictive, I think that would be the main thing. Okay. Um, so I know um, Westland and and us, obviously not these really dark whiskeys here, but I mean, we employ um, used barrels and we blend it in with some of you know whiskey that's been aged solely in in new wood. Mm. Um, and if we wanted to call it just malt whiskey, which it's malt whiskey, um, we would, you know, it wouldn't fit in that category. So as you can see, our whiskey is technically uh, doesn't have a category. It's just whiskey. Um, the bottom line right. just says whiskey. Um, so whiskey, so, but you mentioned barley in there. Yeah, it's bar, you know it's malted yeah. barley and it's made in yeah. the, you know, as a single malt whiskey would. It's um, it's all malted barley from a single distillery, and um, you know we we all want to be comfortable and be able to tell you as much about what is in the bottle as we can, and uh, we want to be able to tell you more. But it's kind of like regulations kind of prevent us from from speaking to um, so for one thing when we have blends that come from different barrels and they're different ages you have an age statement that you put on there and you can't really they don't really want you to talk about the specific months it's spent in each different barrel which is information for what we'd like to give you as being whiskey nerds and guys who appreciate whiskey um, but yeah it's even things like that we can't give you all the information um, it's kind of just like whiskey categories 
being created by the regulators rather than the regulators making an open category and letting us figure out these new styles. Um, so we're trying to get to that level, I think, so where we can actually have our variation and not feel that we're doing anything wrong or you know out of bounds. As we're listening to Zach there talk about the barrels that they use and have access to and char and uh, and a whole bunch of things like that. I know the two of you discuss Compass Box. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And one of the things that I really picked up back in episode 21 when we're listening to Chris of Westland talking is you've got the the American single malt. What was the C, Joshua? Commission. Good job. Yeah, thank well, you. Listen to the American Single Malt Commission here. Do I get a treat? And, and here they are. <laughs> Take a sip of whiskey. You're very Oh, welcome. thank you. Okay, go ahead. So we listen to them talk about they're in America. They're trying to produce single malt, but there are no rules. There are no parameters. They can really do anything they want. Any kind of combination of mash bill, 51% barley, you know, kind of adopt those bourbon rules. They can pick up any wood they want. They can treat it any way they want. No, they, they can't pick up any wood they want. They have but, to use new charred oak. There, there are some that, that, laws, but it's far looser than what the SWA lays down. Doesn't Zach talk about they predominantly use wine casks? The types of casks they're using are like wine casks for size. He's talking about the size. Oh, I thought and he was even just bypassing, no, kind of no, like no, no. like Westland are bypassing <clears throat> no, the, know, some the, of the... Yeah, no. So w- when he said wine casks, he was talking about the size because uh, what I wanted to understand was, you know, are they using... 20 gallon, 30, get, you know, smaller casts to get that, oh, okay. that dark color. Okay. He said, no, 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 we're, we're using casts that are more like wine casks, you know, some thicker oak too, some some heavier oak in there as well, and it's charred in such a way where the whiskey can really dig into the wood. But, you know, back to what I was saying earlier is there are guidelines that are currently in place, but by comparison to what the Scotch Whiskey Association has laid down, it's much looser, and if you if you take what Westland is doing right now, so Westland says on their label, if you look at their label, on one line it says American, on the other line it says single malt. And that's their way of being able to get around what the TTB sees as, uh, you know, there's a definition of single malt, and there's a definition of American single malt. And if it says American single malt all on one line, then they have to adhere to new charred oak, which Westland does not adhere to new charred oak. And so they okay, separate good. out good, those good, good. two lines, which allow them to allow them some more freedom. And what they really want is, you know, let's let's create a a true category so that American single malt, all one line, all one phrase, has a specific meaning. And so we discussed compass box along the lines of, of getting to that transparency, which is what, you know, Balcones and Westland and Few Spirits and, you know, you, you name the producer that makes single malt, they want to have a category that is, is much more defined and allows them also the freedom to be a little more transparent, which is what compass box tried to do 
you know, like mm-hmm. with their three-year-old deluxe where they've got 99% 37-year-old and a few drops of three-year-old. And, and now it's a three-year-old. They have to say three-year-old. They can't even, like, print that there's 37-year-old juice in there. Scotch whiskey goes through. Scotch whiskey goes through a similar thing, where you you had Compass Box, who wanted to list out. This part of the blend was seven years old from Klein Leash. This part of it was 37 years old, and, and so on, just to be transparent, so people can have an understanding of where flavors came from. But they had the SWA like silence that, and so that's why they came out with the three-year-old Deluxe, which was was primarily 30-some-odd-year-old whiskey, give or take, with three-year-old whiskey. And they had to call it a three-year-old. Yeah. Now it's just, um, yeah, they've kind of backed off from their campaign off of truth and labeling. Yeah. Um, because, yeah, it's if people don't want to hear it and you're going to get pushback you know, from inside the industry, it's not really going to happen. Yeah. But I think what you're seeing here is kind of uh, multiple people from the industry coming together to say, hey, no, this is good for all of us. And uh, you know, maybe, uh, maybe regulators should look at it because we're committed to making the best whiskey possible and exactly. work, work with us here. You know? and, and getting to the point where we need to understand that the public needs to be educated. Right. right? There shouldn't be this, you know, I, I don't know if it's coming from we need to protect them because they're not smart enough to understand. Well, I think it's one of the, you know, it's one of the things that um, I guess we want to use the term craft whiskey, you know, um, small Smaller, uh, smaller companies, smaller brands. It's one of the things that we can do is, uh, you know, offer people because we touch the whiskey. We're so intimate with it. We we know exactly what that is. We have the ability to do that. Uh, and maybe that's maybe that's something new. Maybe you know, big guys uh, who are batching just dates of whiskey and putting them together. They don't have the same sort of challenges or. Uh, uh, nuances to their whiskey that they that need explaining, and so to them it could seem confusing. But to us, it's like no. If we're you know, especially in a, in a dramatic uh, example as a thirty-year whiskey, and a three-year whiskey, like no, we have to tell you what we did here. Like yeah. it only makes sense. Like yeah. if the point is to educate the consumer and let them know what they're purchasing, you know that. How does that, you know, why only tell them that lowest in there, you know, if, especially if that's the lowest uh, percentage, you know, blend in the, in the whiskey. Exactly. It's interesting in looking at Compass Box for as many years as we have, where they've always been trying to buck the the rules and the regulations, mm-hmm. where they've, they've been in the business of producing the best whiskey that they possibly can. Yeah. And, and, I, and I know that our, our listeners are very knowledgeable and, and understand that Compass Box is a, a non-distiller producer in the, the American language of our times. Yeah. Yeah. Not even an in, independent bottler. They're, they're a non-distiller right. producer. Yeah. Right. And, and I know that Zach in the interview was, was mentioning that them as producer – have more control over every step of the process, obviously, mm-hmm. right? Uh, Canvas Box doesn't participate in any part of the process until they get the, the sourced casks. Um, and so it, it's interesting for Compass Box to be looking for ways to make an exciting, delicious product. Mm-hmm. 
And you can see why they've taken on the SWA. When the SWA says, nope, you do this the same way as everybody else. Yeah. Here are the parameters. Here are the restrictions. You must obey all of this. And so it's interesting for me listening to the American producers who are now saying, let's agree on a set of rules that we all adhere to. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, guidelines, the, the word that you used a moment ago in our podcast. Um, let's set something up. And, and I, it makes me wonder, why? Hmm. Right? Why do you want those guidelines in place? But do, do, you, do you feel that if they put guidelines in place that they could potentially be painting themselves into a corner? It's always possible, right? Yeah. You're, you're then making your product the same as everybody else's. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the whole point of the guideline. Um, and I wonder how restricting a guideline becomes for an American producer. And then really to riff off of what Zach was saying, as a producer... If you've had the freedom to do whatever you've re- maybe not, I know, I know that's the second time I've used that type of language. If you've had freedom <laughs> to do a lot of what you want, yeah, right. Do you want to now be reined in in some way? Maybe you get to be the producer, uh, like Compass Box, uh, as a non-distilling producer did. Maybe you get to make a name for yourself going against the guidelines. Right? Maybe you start to say, but what if we just did X, Y, and Z? Wouldn't that be a more interesting product? But but at the same time, couldn't it be a little confusing to the consumer? You know, let, let's think about something that Brooke Lottie did under the SWA when they reopened. You know, when, when you are a brand or a new distillery... To be successful, you need to have some standard products that people can rely on, you know, some sort of core range. Uh, but then, you know, if if you're Brooke Lottie just sort of relaunching a brand in, in the early 2000s and you're coming out with, you know, three new expressions per week, who are they? What are they doing? What is their actual personality and if it's the personality of hey guys we're releasing a cacophony of of cacophony is not the word but we're releasing a corn was that was it the word no absolutely yeah cacophony is is like a noise it's like a it was yeah yeah thank you back to audio as opposed to see that see that i'm just so audio focused you know we're releasing a plethora a what a plethora Oh, yes. <laughs> you have a plethora. Jefe, what is a plethora? Why, guapo? Well, you told me I have a plethora. And I just would like to know if you know what a plethora is. I would not like to think that a person would tell someone he has a plethora and find out that that person has no idea what it means to have a plethora. All right, yes, yeah. carry on. Uh, of products, and, and then you have potential new consumers who may be new to your brand and saying, well, what are they doing? The, you know, what, what is their personality? And if your personality is chaos, how many customers, devout customers, are you going to have that is always open 
to spend money on chaos. And and yeah. I, I just don't think that there's going to be a lot. Yeah, yeah. But, but I, at the same time, wonder if you put together a commission and you put the commission logo on your label, one of the questions we are always discussing is, is just how knowledgeable is your average consumer, right? How many so-called average consumers are listening to a podcast like ours? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's a very good chance you've got a so-called average consumer. Mm-hmm. It's just another logo on a bottle. Our, right? our listeners all, are all... above average. Sorry. Just needed to put that out there. Didn't I just say that? No, you just said they're not average. I say they're above average. Ah, okay. Sorry. I was I was assuming the most positive interpretation of that. Okay. <laughs> yes, our our listeners are far <clears throat> but, but yeah, I, I I think that's that's a very good point. You know, how how many of you know, is the average consumer knowledgeable? And I think the answer is no. But I think what the American Single Malt Commission is trying to do is to create a set of definitions that if you were a consumer that wants to approach it a little more, learn a little more, then you have an understanding of what a clear definition is. And I think that if it aligns itself a little more, or potentially a lot more, with what the rest of the world knows as single malt, then you are creating consumers that are much more knowledgeable about the whiskey category in general, regardless from where it's, where it's produced. So I really but, but like that idea. Let's talk about that for just a second, though. If you've, uh, one of the things I've always said when American craft started out, mm-hmm. I always thought the biggest mistake was that that brown spirit was called whiskey. Because people took what they knew as Scotch whiskey, they took what they knew as Irish whiskey, American whiskey, and by that I mean bourbon, Canadian whiskey. And that whiskey word got applied to American craft. And young spirit coming out of five-gallon barrels does not taste like whiskey from any of those other categories. No, that's true. Yep. And I always thought it, it put craft on a bit of a hiding to nothing. And... I thought it created an uphill struggle for them to now come along and have a category that would be American single malt that would now put it on a, on a level on a footing. I'm not, I'm not trying to suggest a hierarchy. I'm just suggesting a, a, a companionship or a federation or mm. a brotherhood. I don't know what I'm trying mm-hmm. to say. A fellowship. Yeah. I like that. You have my sword. And you have my bow. And my axe. Um, one single malt to rule them all. When, when you're now onto that level, you have to have a 53-gallon barrel. You have to have a minimum of three years aging, probably five, maybe six, maybe eight, maybe ten, depending on where you're storing your casks. There are... You know, copper pot still distillation, 100% malted barley in the mash. Like, you really are taking on the global big boys well, with that move. Yes and no. The other thing that we need to remember, and I, and I think Chris Respect touched on this a little bit in episode 2021, 20, was, was aging. 
And you have temperatures in the U.S., depending on where you are in the U.S., that vary greatly. So you've got Seattle, which is much more closer to Scotland. You've got Kentucky, which may be a little closer to, say, um, India from the really high humid temperatures that they'll get in the summer, you know, and so on. And the predominance, you know, you've got an American palate that when it comes to American whiskey really likes that the sweetness of the new charred oak. And so from an aging standpoint, you know, one of the things that Chris said they were they were keen not not to define too much was a minimum age statement mm-hmm, mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. you can have a producer in Kentucky yep. that produces single malts, uses kiln dried staves, and if the minimum is three years and you have barley, which is a much more delicate grain than corn, uh, you could just be you know bottling liquid popsicle sticks that may not be such a great product, but yep. if you release it at a year old. That could be kind of interesting. And if you can change up the types of barley you're using in the mash, that could be even more interesting. You know, it, For sure. It, it, We've experienced that with Westland. Yeah, and, and it reminds me of, of what Robin Robinson had said when we spoke with him, that you know, you've got a lot of craft producers right now that because they don't have the time to wait you know, to mature stock and release it, they need to make money now, which is which is another great consideration for craft producers and the American single malt category of these small producers that don't necessarily have three years to wait. So oh, for sure, right? So Robin Robinson had said, "You you have these people that are creating delicious beers using really cool yeast, using interesting barley." Uh, cool distillation process and maturing it for a shorter period of time and creating a product that has lovely flavors where they're focusing more on the front end pre-maturation to help them out. So I think if what you're saying is the way they went where they have to adhere to that three years minimum, in the U.S. it could be really difficult. Correct. Correct. Um, I think it'll be a, a fascinating category to watch. Mm-hmm. And I always feel, and I, I did, I, I felt the same way, and I've said it previously, I've always felt fortunate to have been in the U.S. at the very beginning of American craft whiskey production. Yeah. And observing that and speaking to the producers and learning um, about their goals and, and learning about keeping the lights on and the doors open, I've, I've always found that to be wonderful, wonderful uh, time in whiskey history. Yeah. And I feel very privileged. Now, as we watch some of those producers pivot into single malt commission guidelines, what have you, I'm curious to see if they'll sidestep the issues that have affected the SWA. Where if you speak to Scottish producers, for the most part, they're still pro-SWA. They still see the value of the SWA, and they're very pleased that they've got a very clearly defined product that they can put on shelves and global consumers Mm -hmm. can know the bare bones of what the SWA is trying to achieve. 
the same time, there are issues, there are problems. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, if the ASMC, possibly get that correct, (laughs) the ASMC. Right? Right. If, If they're now in this privileged position of being the first ones to to coin the guidelines, how well do they do it? And how well do they consider, just like Chris did in the previous episode, and we get um, Zach talking about uh, barreling strength in today's or barrel use uh, and so on and so forth. Are they able to sidestep the same issues? Are they smart enough from what they've seen with the SWA to create guidelines that really well serve American single malt producers? Well, the interesting thing, I think, that the U.S. has over the Scotch Whiskey Association is that in Scotland, there is a specific association that creates these guidelines, and that association is incredibly knowledgeable about the entire industry, where when it comes to creating guidelines in the U.S., it's really driven by the producers who have basically, uh, you know, a window every seven or nine years. I forget what the exact number is, but it's driven by the producers rather than as an association. And they have to work with the TTB, which is so large uh, the the people who are making the decisions about that may not know as much as the actual producers themselves. And I'm not trying to cut on the TTB. I'm just, you know, pointing out the differences there. And and so it'll be interesting if they lay down certain guidelines and they need to make a change, it's going to be another seven or nine years. But at least they have the opportunity to do that. I'm sure Scotch Whiskey Association has particular periods in which they review things. But the last massive change I remember that the Scotch Whiskey Association made, and and feel free to correct me if there's a newer one, was back in 2013, uh, part of the definition of being Scotch whiskey is it had to be um, distilled and matured in Scotland, but it could be bottled elsewhere. In October of 2013, they changed it to distilled, matured, and bottled in Scotland. And it had to meet those guidelines to be called Scotch whiskey. Yep, yep. Yeah, and I I did want to bring up the TTB even just for a little bit because sometimes there's frustration with the TTB that the people making decisions don't really have the best – education on how to make those decisions. Mm. Uh, you know, famously, when Amrut came to the United States, there was no category for it. Um, yeah, there was no Indian was a, single malt. Right? Yeah. And there was a lot of back and forth. At the end of the day, it was simply single malt produced in India to, to the same specifications as single malt produced in Scotland. Mm-hmm. Uh, why that was so confusing and so difficult was really beyond me. Um, but I think there's a lot of concern out there that as soon as you get a government agency involved, it's pretty much all gone to hell at that point. And so yeah. it needs to be regulated by the producers. Producers in charge of that are, are leaving producers to lead the way. Then you get the question, does it only 
end up with the biggest producers. You know, we're talking about American craft, and big is a relative term. It's not like your Diageos of the world leading or your Pernod Ricards, your Bacardis uh, leading it. You know, we are on a smaller scale over here. But yeah. But if you've got Constellation buying up distilleries and if you've got Remy purchasing distilleries and be a different, yeah. Colonel Ricard purchasing distilleries in the U.S., does do the regulations fall to them? It's, I think it's a careful line to be drawn there. Potentially. But let's keep in mind the one of the biggest distilleries – that is is backing this commission is Westland because they're the largest single malt producer in the U.S. and they are owned by Remy, but it's not Remy that is pushing this. It's Westland, you know, who had you know brought all of these distilleries together to say, "Hey guys, we're American producers. Let's do something." But a big, massive corporation slash conglomerate could surely try to push something through, especially if there's some lobbying money. You know, th- th- there's a reason why bourbon uses new charred oak, right? The forestry lobbyists, you know, were uh, basically helping to push laws. And sometime after uh, Prohibition, you know, you had these wood lobbyists that said, you know, let's get in there that it has to be new charred oak. So now they had consistent customers of buying oak and, you know, keeping people employed and keeping businesses running. But it wasn't always the case that you had to use new charred oak. But but I would say that's one of the, the frustrations that I hear from uber whiskey nerds. And I know we've, we've talked earlier on the podcast about your average whiskey consumer. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot on their radar and it potentially overwhelming and they like to buy what they buy and like what they like and so on and yeah, so forth. Yeah. But when you go to the Uber whiskey nerd, I think for them there's a frustration that their passionate love of whiskey runs up the nefa- runs up against the nefarious interests of big business, mm-hmm. where, as you're talking about the, the wood lobbyists and new charred oak, it's simply follow the money. I think one of the things for the Uber whiskey nerd is following the money makes them very unhappy yeah. with the decisions that are being made. Yeah. They want and to follow so, the flavor. Right? Yeah. Oh, and, and the, the and the not quite the beauty of production, but the 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 innocence of whiskey production. Yeah. That's, that's not, In, innocence, really elegance, either, the... I, I know right. what you're trying to say. Uh, yeah, the romance. Yeah, the, the romance, romance of go. production. Yeah. Right? yeah. So the Uber whiskey nerd wants to follow the romance of production. And that... You know, I'm kind of listening to our conversation with a business ear and the the need for a commission and guidelines and rules and key mash bills and so on and so forth. But then I'm also listening with an uber nerd ear mm-hmm. where where I'm thinking, but, but what if you just pursued it as you saw fit, right? And you just laid down. And again, Zach touches on this uh, in the in the interview. What if you just um, 
<laughs> and I knew I sound naive when these words come out of my mouth, but <laughs> what if you what if what if you just trusted transparency to to the producers, right? And we're able to say, here's the mash bill, right? And it's sixty percent malted barley yeah. and fifteen percent corn and so on down the line, right? And we and we matured it in such and such a cask. And it was so many months or so many years, right? Why why do we why do we lose that? Where do we lose that? And remember, I am listening one business year, one yeah. Uber whiskey nerd year. Yeah, yeah. I think I like to look at it differently. I, I, I think that the the producers should be allowed a certain amount of transparency that is currently not afforded those producing whiskey in Scotland, right? Getting back to what Zach and I were talking about with, with Compass Box, and you and I touched on this too, where Compass Box wants to inform the consumer about exactly what's in their bottle. Right. And, you know, uh, Aaron did this as well with the first Devil's mm-hmm. Punch Bowl. Exactly. Right. Where they listed out every cask, how old the whiskey was, what type of, uh, you know, was it peated, was it unpeated, so on and so forth. And as a whiskey consumer, you know, who wants to know a little bit, that's really interesting. And I think it would help to get people interested as well. You know, and the SWA doesn't want that to happen. Uh, but I would like to see them being allowed to show more transparency for American products. However, everything okay? When I say whoa, I mean So Jason just informed me. We paused for a second there. Jason just informed me, and this tells you that he is living in in, in rural Kentucky. Uh, I mean, rural uh, Virginia. <laughs> I said Kentucky because of what's happening right now. What's what's happening? What's clip clopping down your street, Jason? I just had a horse go past my house. <laughs> yeah, it was hard to keep recording the podcast with that clip clop, clip clop. Sounded like the beginning of um, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. You know, I've always referred to horses as stable geniuses. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> and to be honest, I did not, with my own two eyes, see the horse, and so it very well could have been um, uh, somebody with a pair of coconuts shells. Whoa! It might go all over our town doing that. But but yeah, transparency. However, you implied something that makes me incredibly nervous. Oh, and that was not just not just allowing transparency, but allowing a certain amount of loosey goosiness. To say what it now, correct me if I misunderstood or if I'm reading into it, but it sounded as if you basically said, What if these producers were allowed to create a mash bill that kept that minimum 51% single malt, you know, malted barley in the mash bill, and we still call it single malt? But we allow them to use wheat, we allow them to use corn, you know, so long as you're using 51%. 
malted barley in the mash bill. And if you're suggesting that, I have a big problem with it. Why? Why do you have a big problem with that? Because it's not single malt. It, okay, so you've got single that implies it's produced at a particular distillery. It's whiskey, so it's a spirit made from grain. And the malt refers to the type of grain. Now, in in bourbon, bourbon is just bourbon, 51%. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I guess in the U.S., you, like you can call rye, you can call rye, rye so long as it's 51%. But, you know, part of the reason why rye whiskey is not never, but rarely 100% rye is because of the difficulty of the grain itself and working with the grain. And so you've got pr- producers that, that, that want to mix up the mash bill. But to allow the U.S. to create a single malt that isn't all malt, it just seems wrong. <laughs> you know, I, I know we have, as far as wine... Well, if you create go- a category, if, yeah. if they do end up creating a category that is American single malt, yeah, then yeah, you're not going to get away with that type of thing, right? That, that's clearly not going to work. There, there is going to be a demand for 100% malted barley. The only point I was making was, what if you could just have a producer who wants to play around with that mash bill? Maybe not produce something within the category. I'm not saying break the rules of the category. What I'm saying is, what about, just like our friends at Compass Box, what if you get as close to the category as you can, but you're still doing your own unique thing? The hope for me is that we see full transparency. And obviously... The problem becomes when someone doesn't have full transparency and tries to claim that a product is what it isn't. That's that's a problem coming and going. But, well, yeah. So I'd like to see experimentation yeah. and playing around with the the edges of a category. I'm I'm cool with that, and and I think the the I think wine does an okay job with that, where you can have a Cabernet Sauvignon. And it just says Cabernet Sauvignon gives you the the year that it was produced and everything like that. But then you have other producers that are given the the luxury of being transparent where Cabernet Sauvignon only needs to have a certain percentage of Cabernet grapes in there. And they can have Zinfandel and, you know... Syrah grapes or Merlot, you know, whatever it is, so long as whatever that percentage is, and I don't know what it is, you know, is, you know, it's mostly Cabernet. So you have some producers that are saying this is a Cabernet Sauvignon and it has 3% this, 10% that, and 5% this. And so you could see all this in it and wine dorks will say, okay, that grape gives you such and such a flavor. That grape gives you will give you this certain flavor. And so those consumers have the luxury of, depending on the producer, of potentially seeing some transparency. Where currently right now there isn't that potential for transparency necessarily. On top of that, there isn't necessarily with some producers a a want to give a, a certain amount of transparency. Not everybody wants to tell you what their match bill is which I find surprising. Correct. And I, and I think that's where we get back to SWA, where there's that lack of transparency. Yeah. 
which if the US could fight against that, I think it would help to create their own niche for whatever brown matured spirits mm-hmm. they're putting out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That'd be the hope. So, so enough of this. So, yeah, yeah. we've 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 gone we've gone way down that rabbit hole. <laughs> way down it. One, one of the aspects I enjoyed in your interview with Zach was you're trying to make this claim about perceived big bold Texas flavors, mm-hmm. and and Zach said something very interesting <laughs> about his own favorite flavors. And I'm going to let him speak for himself, since you and I have done a lot of speaking up to this point. Cool. Loudmouth. So, oh, I meant to say, this is delicious. People like it. Pretty, pretty robust whiskey. I generally um, kind of steer towards a little more delicate, balanced whiskeys myself. So this isn't, you know, right up my alley. But um, yeah, I think it's a it's it's a great uh, example. Of, you know, the I don't know how to describe it. The opposite of delicate. <laughs> yeah, it's well, not overly tannic or grippy, but uh, no, it's uh, to, to me that's to me it kind of screams the bigness of Texas. Right, where everything is just bigger, everything is a larger statement, and but at the same time, at 64 percent, the only tingle I got was a little bit of tingle on my lips from the alcohol, but on the tongue, there, there wasn't any heat. Like it holds its alcohol really well. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that I mean, we we find, you know, we believe and uh, find in our spirits often, and uh, I think I hear that a lot as far as the the, the bigness of our skin relating it to Texas, it's like, oh yeah, it's big and it's strong because Texas. Um, but really, when I tell people the reason that we release a lot of cast strength uh, products is because um, the whiskey that comes out of the cask is kind of a, a whole story. And uh, if we proof that down for you and, tell, and give it to you at, you know, 40%, we've kind of already um, edited that, you know, the whole story for you and are just giving you this, this special portion that we're, and, you know, why wouldn't you think that, oh, this is this is the way to drink it. This is the best, this is the best point. And so people, when they ask me, like, oh, well, should I put any water in your cast strength? Or, you know, this is obviously how you intended me to drink. And it's like, no, I'm just giving you the full story. I, I expect, and I would you know, implore everyone to try a drop of water in there, take a sip, put another drop in there, and get it to where it feels comfortable and you actually enjoy it the most. Uh, and we're just telling you, yeah, this is the whiskey from the barrel. This is what it does. Uh, if you buy the whiskey and it's at 40%, someone else just put the water in there for you. So we're giving you the opportunity to, uh, you know, choose your own gram, essentially. And, and this, is, this is one thing that I think about every once in a while. If you add water to a 40% alcohol whiskey... It's legally not even whiskey anymore. Like you have stopped drinking whiskey at that point. It's it's become a liqueur. I think I'm gonna use that at a bar sometimes. Well, you're not even drinking whiskey, right? That's true. Yeah. What are what are some of your whiskeys that are a little lighter in the flavor profile that you that you seem to prefer? Um, so as far as um, whiskeys, nothing that we've released. Um, as I talked about, um, used barrels and with with single malts, uh, we have been doing that. Like I said, some of them end up in the in the blends, um, but we have been keeping some solely used um, used ex bourbon casks, some of our ex uh, malt casks, some of our ex corn casks, and I've been building that up. And because it's used barrels. 
um, you know, it can take a lot more time in the barrel. Mm -hmm. um, so we have some uh, as old as four years now, and it's not even half that color. Yeah. Yeah. Um, super fruity, super grainy, uh, really awesome. Uh, I look forward to releasing that probably next year at some okay. point. And those um, are 53-gallon. Are you typically using 53-gallon uh, casks? Um, closer to 60-gallon because they're, um, as I was talking about the toast on our barrels, um, they're really, uh, they're wine barrels um, more than they are bourbon barrels. We do have some bourbon barrels, uh, brand new as well as used. Um, but yeah, we employ the used barrels after they get some time in our new barrels when they've gotten uh, too much wood too fast. Yeah. We just want to need a little bit more oxidation, a little more of the reductive process than the additive, um, and then we'll put those in some, usually uh, used four roses um, or buffalo trace barrels um, that we get. Um, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to that when it comes out. It seems like it, I mean, that stuff was excellent at one year old, it was excellent at two years old, and now I never thought it would make it to four, but now it's just like, man, the, the only thing I can compare this to is, you know, like a 19 or 21 year old, you know, ex-bourbon uh, filled scotch, uh, maybe even like a, maybe even a lowland, like it's pretty delicate and uh, pretty, pretty tasty. People say audio footage. They do say audio footage. They don't say right. footage. <laughs> so, so yeah so i really liked you know what zach was saying about you know his tastes go more towards the lighter side of, of what balcones is doing i don't know off the top of my head if you know getting back to what we were talking about with a standard product line if balcones has a standard hey this is our lighter whiskey using, you know, used casks and, and things like that, uh, you know, it would be interesting if they did start adding that because myself as a consumer and granted, and I've got, you know, a few bottles in my collection, of course, but I'm not always paying attention to what their new products are and their core range are. You know, I, I rely on Winston to let me know what's going on and, and pour some stuff for me. Um, but, um, it's good to have a guy. It, yeah, it's nice to have a guy, but you know, I, I like the fact that they are in a way bucking that perception of, oh, Balcones, they make that big, bold whiskey that, Hey, here's some, here's some lighter stuff. Give this a go. You know, this could be really interesting. And I'm excited about that personally. Yeah, no, I, thanks to Zach for his time and for, pushing the category of American single malt. We'll definitely watch this space to see what comes from the American Single Malt Commission's efforts. Yeah. And, yeah, you know, we've given our listeners a sense of questions that we've got as it moves forward. Yeah. And, uh, obviously, as always, love to hear from our listeners on what questions they've got as yeah. it moves forward. And I know that they'll be watching the space as eagerly as we are. The other thing I want to put out there as well, you know, Winston likes to show me a lot of their passion projects. You know, when he when he comes to an event, you know, they've got a core range, uh, Brimstone and then Texas Single Malt, of course. And, you know, there is Rumble Cask and so forth. But he, he shows me some of their passion product projects or their annual releases or what have you. And one of the finest American single malts that I've had came from Balcones, and it was called Froak, F-R-O-A-K, 
which was a fun way to smash French oak together. They called it froak. <laughs> so, you know, so you had this balcone single malt, which was incredibly rich. Uh, but on top of that, you had the lovely spice coming from the French oak that they were using to additionally mature it. And it was like some, you know, 60-whatever percent alcohol. And, and just like what I was having... You, you heard me talking about, I think you heard me talking about it, I'm trying to remember what audio I inserted here, but I did in the in my interview with Zach uh, talk a little bit about a product that he was pouring, and it was a rum, mm. and the rum was just drop-dead gorgeous, you know, again, big, bold, that, you know, that style, but you know the the lovely flavors coming from the sugar or the or the molasses. I don't remember what they use to start off, but it was just great rum. So I think Balcones is worth checking out beyond their whiskey. There are other products like the rum, like the Rumblecast Reserve, which I think is great, and uh, this Froke if you can find it, which is French oak finished single malt, just top notch stuff. Perfect. As a small tangential aside which we may or may not be known for. As soon as you said Froch, it actually made me think of Frauch, which is the Scottish beer made from heather. F-R-A-O-C-H. And so you had me thinking about that right away. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I like that beer. But different products. Yeah, different different products. products. Different products. Small tangential aside, complete. (laughs) A couple, a couple points of interest here. I, I do have a, a misconception, which I think ties in kind of nicely to what we're talking about with transparency, especially as it, as it pertains to age. But before we do that, did you have any news that you wanted to... Oh, I had some news, Jason, that I think is key to be brought out here. Key. Fucking key, Jason then you better go wake up our paper boy. Extra, extra, read all about it. Life story of Playboy Penny. Extra, 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 read all about it. Me and that Playboy in trouble again. (laughs) How do you wake him up? Do you give him a spanking? (laughs) I just beat on the box. Beat on the box. Beat on the box. Beat on the brat with a baseball bat. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh. So what is your burning news, Joshua? So we are building out Whiskey Jubilee Week Seattle. We are. And we have an event on the Monday, which is the 12th of of March, that we're going to be doing with Barrel Thief. And more details to come there. Uh, we will have an event on the Tuesday that we're, we're sorting that out now. But I'm very excited to let people know that we will be doing a live recording of the podcast on Wednesday, March 14th at Westland Distillery with uh, Matt Hoffman of the distillery so the the master distiller there there may be a couple of other people there too i'm i'm hoping steve holly will join us but he tends to be he tends to prefer to stay behind the scenes he does he likes to be on the periphery taking photographs yeah 
which, yeah, if anybody's ever seen the picture of me nosing a whiskey uh, in, in a warehouse, and hopefully the version that you've seen of me doing that has at the bottom the cast from Mystery Science Theater 3000 pointing at me and making fun of me. Uh, that picture was taken by, by Stephen Hawley. Indeed it was. Uh, but we are going to have a live recording of the podcast at the distillery on the 14th. Uh, time has, has, is to be determined. However, uh, if you are an attendee of Whiskey Jubilee, um, we will soon have the opportunity for you to put your name in to say, hey, I want to be there. And there's going to be a fun panel of, of, of people there just talking whiskey. It'll be a, a bit Westland-focused, of course, because we're going to be at Westland. But um, it'll be great to have some people out in the crowd. Yeah, looking forward to it. Yeah. I think we've got a great following in Seattle. We've got tremendous support at the Jubilee. Mm-hmm. As of today's recording, we have, what, a dozen tickets remaining for the Whiskey Jubilee Seattle? Ten. We're down to ten. Look at that. But, My goodness gracious. But today is January 8th. So Correct. Oh, by the time this goes live, it will be long sold out. I, I hope you're right. I mean, I, you know, long in a way, I want out. people listening to to enjoy. But come January 17th, my guess is that this will be sold out. Well, I also know a lot of our current listeners in Seattle have their tickets. So that is very exciting also. There is that. There is that. Um, any more news? That's a big one about our live podcast at the Western Distillery. Do we have more? We have other stuff, but, you know, we've we had this really tangential conversation about guidelines of American whiskey and Scotch whiskey and so on and so forth. So if, I'd, I'd like to move on. I will. Unless something's burning, Jason. Is something... No, oh, no, no, no. Nothing is burning. This is January. Nothing is burning on January 8th. No, everything's uh, fine when you pee. You're all good. Uh, no burning so sensations. far, so far, 43 years into this, still no burning. So let's, let's hope I can get through 2018 with the same. <laughs> <laughs> so you were alluding to before our news segment that you have a misconception for this week. I do is have this, a misconception. Is this about to be a grind my gears or are you no, going to no, be no. pretty well, calm and level-headed about this? I tell you, this year... You know, I was texting with you yesterday. <laughs> this year so far, and granted, we're only eight days into this. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's all smooth sailing for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'm very hopeful about this year. And, and you know, I can get crotchety and things can, can get on my tits and all, but I've got nothing nothing upsetting me uh, right now. So, so no, this, this I thought was, was kind of interesting. We talked about transparency, mm-hmm. and transparency can be can manifest itself in many different ways. You know, are you being transparent about the match bill are you, of a whiskey? Are you being transparent about the age, or allowed to be transparent about the age? Right? Or, or you know, I'm sure there there are a few other things. Uh, the source of the, you know, if we're looking at American whiskey, are you allowed to be transparent about where you source that whiskey from? So it reminded me of something that I learned a while back, and this is public information. There's a website out there somewhere that has this a little bit. So what I'm about to say is not very controversial, but 
I found it quite interesting. So you have some brands out there that have specific age-stated products, right? So let's use, for the sake of this argument, Glendronach. So you've got Glendronach that has their 12-year-old. They had a 15-year-old that sadly went away. They're 18-year-old, they're 21-year-old, they have a 31-year-old as well, I think, or is it 33? It's one of the two. I don't know. Right? Don't know. So they have, like we talked about before, right, a core range of products. And in their particular case, they, they tend to focus on age. However, on top of having age statements, now, hopefully most people know this, and if you don't know this, then then you're learning something new. But if you have, say, a Glendronach 12-year-old, there's a good chance that there may be some 13-year-old stuff in there and some 14-year-old stuff and so forth. But the minimum age on a label should be the youngest whiskey in the label, right? Or on Mm -hmm. the label. And they add in some of this older whiskey because what these producers want to do is they want to ensure that the 12-year-old is always... What they're trying to do, they're trying their best to do, is always ensure that the 12-year-old always tastes like the 12-year-old, the 15 always tastes like the 15, and so forth. The reason I'm using Glendronach as the example is there's a chart out there somewhere that shows you, okay, here's the here's the Glendronach 12-year-old that, here's the Glendronach 12-year-old label, here's the 15, here's the 18, here's the 21, and so on. And then on the other side of the table, it shows you the the year that it was released, 2012, 2013, 2014, 2015, and so on. And because of the way Glendronach stock worked, because they were, you know, reopened or revived, I think it was in 2010 or 11, uh, the way that their stock worked is their 12-year-old each year got a year older. So it was 12, and then it was 13, minimum age, 13. This is true. Right? All the way up to, I think, 15 or 16 years old. Their 15-year-old, I think, got as high as 21 years old or something like that. And and so so something to look out for. You know, if you find some older bottlings of Glendronach, you may find that that 12-year-old is actually an 18-year-old, and that, that's a good find for you. But I bring this up because... The, the misconception is that, okay, the whiskey in that bottle, it says it's 12 years, so it's 12 years old. Well, in most cases, it's a marriage of minimum 12 years old and potentially 13, 14, 15 years old it could be. And in some cases, like the Glendronach, and again, this is public knowledge. You could just do a Google search for it. Uh, you could have a 12-year-old that may be 18 years old and a 15-year-old that may be a 21-year-old. But they kept their labels because it's so much easier to keep your labels, right? You're telling that story of here's our age range. And in the U.S., you're not, you know, we talked about the TTB before, the Tax and Trade Bureau. Those are the people that approve labels for beer, wine, uh, spirits. It, it sometimes getting a label approved is not the easiest thing, as as you know was proven by your Amrit story. So it's easier for them to just keep the same labels. And hey, the whiskey got older for a certain period, and they dealt with it. 
Well, and I think it's also part of the messaging to your consumer, right? You're a consumer who likes Glendronic 12. Mm -hmm. And so you're always going out looking for Glendronic 12. If you're a fan of the 12 and suddenly Glendronic puts out a Glendronic 13, you maybe look at it sideways. You maybe wonder if that's as good. Maybe the price goes up. That was also part of the unspoken benefit of getting older tasting whiskey was you were not paying that same price you were no. paying for 12 year old whiskey which was no nice. I, I like what you, i like what you did with that misconception because it's the common misconception amongst newbie consumers is that the number on the bottle perhaps reflects the oldest whiskey in the bottle right right yeah and so oftentimes we we fight the misconception of that um, it's interesting to come at it from another angle and say, for those who know it's the youngest whiskey in the bottle, they might not think there's anything more than a year older yeah. than the age statement on a bottle. Yeah. That's nice. I like that one, Joshua. That's a nice little wrinkle to start the year. The one, the one thing that I don't know is if that information came directly from Glendronach and out or if it was gathered mm. elsewhere. If it if it came from Glendronach, then I tip my hat to them for saying, you know, good on you. But I don't think it did. But you know what? I'll tip I my could, hat to them just for making damn good whiskey. I could I could guarantee you one hundred percent that that was the result of uber nerd investigative work. Yeah. So yes. earlier on, I told people about uh, the desert planet of Arrakis and and Dune and the spice and how emails were flowing in. And so I just want to remind people that if you want to get your question in for us to answer for our February 14th episode, our first mailbag episode, get it in by January 31st. Email us questions at onenationunderwhiskey.com. Send us an Instagram message at One Nation Under Whiskey. Tweet at us at One Nation Whiskey. Or send us a Facebook message um, at, no, <laughs> facebook.com slash One Nation Under Whiskey. Yeah, I'm loving watching them come in. I think we're going to have a fantastic first anniversary show with great, wonderful, terrific participation. Uh, from our listeners. Yeah, what I what I like too is they're they're coming from around the world, which is mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. cool. Uh it's not just American listeners, it's we've got people from all around sending in questions, which is very cool. Yeah, that was that's an interesting podcast for us. I th- I think <laughs> if we ever do pick the word of the podcast, sometimes it's something funny or fancy or misused, but today has been the word Interesting. I know that I've used the word interesting many, 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 many times Mm -hmm. to the point of it becoming a little bit of a tick and me trying not to say it. And then it (laughs) comes out my mouth anyway. So hopefully we have recorded an interesting episode for our dedicated, devoted, wonderful, high, high above average. Oh, yes. Yes. Whiskey consumer listeners. Do do we have a um a, a misused podcast a, a misused word of the podcast? <laughs> Hopefully, it's not interesting. <laughs> <laughs> no cacophony. I don't, I don't know why cacophony came out of my mouth. I mean, cacophony of sound tends to come out of my mouth, but 
That that is very true. <laughs> <laughs> very true. Uh, but let's let's get out of here on that. I I like. I like Zach Pilgrim's time and greatly appreciate it. You doing the interview, as always. Thank you. Of course. The conversation about guidelines, our big news, live podcast. Yeah. First one uh, first that we'll ever one. do. I'm so excited about that, Jason. Yeah. On March 14, a Wednesday at Westland Distillery. And then your misconception, I thought, was spot on. So Thank you, sir. Cheers to you, Joshua. Cheers to our listeners. Let's get out of here now. Cheers.